According to Hebrew tradition, right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem, one can step into the center of the world. The rock that is underneath the Dome of the Rock is what is known as the foundation stone. Literally, the point of creation, the center of the entire world. A third-generation Namibian shares the love for his country and its one-of-a-kind natural beauty, unlike anywhere else in Africa. We have some very specific species, like the desert-adapted elephants, desert-adapted lions, that you don't get anywhere else in Africa. Sure, there's elephants and lions everywhere else, but not that live in the harsh conditions and specialized conditions like ours. If you live in a big city, you can always have your choice of international restaurants that will give you a taste of the world. But in a small town in Indiana, we discovered a surprising restaurant that transported us to Sicily through our palate and served up some of the best pizza we've ever had. Explore biblical history, Namibia's landscape, and small town treasures today on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. is home to the world's oldest desert and largest cheetah population. The country's political, economic, and social stability, along with its commitment to conservation, makes this African country an attractive tourist destination. We'll find out more in just a bit. Coming up on today's World Footprints radio show, we'll journey to New Salem, Indiana, where we'll travel to Sicily through our palates at Pirello's Restaurant and Pizzeria, and we'll discover other small-town treasures in the United States. First, we'll step into the footsteps of biblical history just outside the old city walls of Jerusalem as Zev Orenstein takes us around the city of David and along the way some of the city's roosters will join in the conversation. How old is the city? So let's get a sense of how old and where we're talking about right now. If you look to the north past this not-so-ancient palm tree, you will see a gray dome. That gray dome sits atop Mount Moriah, otherwise known as the Temple Mount. That gray dome is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That is the number three holy site, according to Islam. Directly behind the gray dome, if you look over here, you will see the famous Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is the longest standing Islamic structure in the world. Uh, its significance, according to Muslim tradition, is this is the spot where Muhammad went on his night journey up to heaven. He learns uh, the tradition for the Muslim prayers, comes back down and shares it with, uh, with, with uh, the Muslims. According to Hebrew tradition, the rock that is underneath the Dome of the Rock is what is known as the foundation stone. Literally, the point of creation, the center of the entire world. According to Hebrew tradition, that is also the site where Adam and Eve are created. That is the site where the binding of Isaac takes place. That is the site where King David's son, Solomon, will build the temple. It will stand for about 450 years or so. It's destroyed by the Babylonians. And then it's rebuilt 70 years later during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it is destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. All of this is taking place over here on the Temple Mount. Now, if you look in front of us, you can see the ancient wall surrounding the old city. Now, if I were to ask you, 
how old is this wall? Oftentimes I'll hear answers like, well, 2,000 years old, 3,000 years old, 4,000 years old. The wall is 450 years old, right? It was built by Suleiman the Magnificent during the period of the Ottoman Empire. Now, what's interesting is where we're standing. I mean, 450 years old, if you guys are from the United States, that's old. It's older than the United States. Where we're standing right now is almost 4,000 years old. The original city of Jerusalem was a Canaanite city, dating back about 3,800 years ago to the time of the patriarchs, say the time of Abraham. Uh, And this city was built by the Canaanites, 800 years before David. Okay, so even though today it's known as the city of David and the Bible's known as the city of David, originally it was a Canaanite city, okay? So, when Suleiman builds the walls around the old city, it's ironic that what does he leave out of the walls? He leaves out Jerusalem, right? He leaves out the ancient city of Jerusalem. Why? Because, again, if you look at the picture over here from 100 years ago, as far as Suleiman and everyone else was concerned, there was nothing here, right? Why would you include this, this ridge where there's nothing happening? Okay, so that's to the north. If we look now to the east, we have the famous Mount of Olives, the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. It is also the longest active use cemetery perhaps anywhere in the world. People have been buried on the Mount of Olives from today going back 2,600 years. We've already identified over 100,000 graves on the Mount of Olives. Now you might be wondering why do so many people want to be buried on the Mount of Olives? According to Hebrew tradition, and it's not just Hebrew tradition, whether it is Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, all of the great monotheistic faiths, when it comes to the end of days, they all agree on one thing. There's much they don't agree on. But the one thing they do agree on is, when it comes to the end of days, the party is going to happen here. Right? This area surrounding us, this is where the party is going to be. Now, one of the things, according to Hebrew tradition, that uh, is said to happen when the Messiah comes is what is called in Hebrew, Tchiat Hametim, the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Now, the people who will come back first are the people buried on the Mount of Olives. Therefore, if you are what I like to call an early adopter, right? If you already have your iPhone 6 or 6 Plus, then you're the type of person who says, I want to be buried on the Mount of Olives. If you're the type of person who says, look, I want to make sure the technology works before I commit to it, you'll say, you know what? Let me get buried somewhere else. Make sure these guys come back the way they're supposed to come back, and, and, then, and then I'll come back after them, right? So that's the Mount of Olives. Conflict and controversy have eclipsed the fact that Jerusalem is a place for all people of all faiths to find common ground. But one thing about being in Jerusalem that is undeniable is how it provides a living and historical context for people of faith and scripture. When you read the Bible, right, it's very hard sometimes to connect to it. So I want to give you an example here of how when you're standing in the place where the events of the Bible took place, how it's different. If you look beneath the buildings here in this village, you can see cut into the mountainside in the rock there are these square caves. Does everyone see these caves? These are ancient burial caves going back 2,600 years. Now, in the Bible, when somebody of note dies, it would say they're gathered up amongst their ancestors, which is a nice way of saying that somebody died. But if you look at these ancient burial caves, what happened 2,600 years ago when somebody died? They would take a body, and they would put it on a stone slab inside the burial cave, and they would leave the body there for a few weeks, a month. They'd come back, and you're left with the skeleton. So now, what do you do with the skeleton? In the back of the cave, there is a bone pit. Now, whose bones are in this bone pit? Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, great grandma and great grandpa. 
And so now what do you do? You take this, this person who just passed away and you put his bones with his ancestors' bones. That's why when the Bible says that the person is gathered up amongst their ancestors, it's not just figurative. That was literally what would happen. Now, you could only appreciate that, though, when you're standing here. You see the ancient burial cave. You're like, wow, well, that's what they used to do. That's why it says it that way in the Bible. Not just because it sounded right, but because that was the reality. Okay? If you look now to the south, you have the ridge of Armon and Natsiv. Uh, there's a building, a whitish gray building straight across from us. That's the United Nations headquarters for the Middle East. Uh, and if you look to the west here, you have Mount Zion uh, over here. So now in Psalm 125, right, it says Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. Now again, it's a very poetic description of Jerusalem written by King David some 3,000 years ago. Now I grew up in New Jersey. And in New Jersey... You know, you learn, I went to Hebrew school, you learn the Bible, it says Abraham stood on this hill and looked out to that valley and saw this river and it doesn't mean anything, right? It's very hard to connect to it from New Jersey. By the way, we are right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem and City of David tour guide Zev Orenstein is taking us on a walk through the excavation sites and sharing some biblical history. So here, I want to give you another example. Says Psalm 125, Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains. Yerushalayim harim savivla. Now again, very beautiful, poetic language. But let's stop for a minute and say, if David was here 3,000 years ago, what did he see? He'd look to the north, he'd see Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. He'd look to the east, he'd see the Mount of Olives. He'd look to the south, he'd see the ridge of Armon and Sea. He'd look to the west, he'd see Mount Zion. He would see that Jerusalem is in fact surrounded by mountains. The reason why that is the terminology that's used is because that's what was the biblical experience. It's not just poetic at night. It sounds nice. That was the reality during the time of the Bible, and you could appreciate it when you're standing in the place where the Bible happened. Archaeologist Dr. Elit Mazar has been one of the leading figures in helping to uncover the history of King David, and it hasn't been without some controversy. If you look at the city of David, so it's a slope, it's a ridge that slopes downwards, north to south, okay? She says, where does it make the most sense that you would find the palace? She says you would find the palace at the top of the city. We are at the top of the city of David uh, during the time of King David, she says, this is where the palace would have been. So we said, Dr. Mazar, that's a great theory. But maybe 3,000 years ago, they built the palaces in the middle of the city. Maybe they built the palaces at the bottom of the city. Just because today, it's, this is the spot where if you were king, or in this case, queen, you would build your palace, doesn't mean that that's what David did. We're not going to move our visitor center just for that. <laughs> right? We need a little bit more meat, so to speak, a little bit more substance. Up on the wall over here, you have a royal Phoenician capital. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. This royal Phoenician capital was found at the bottom of the hill that we're standing on. It rolled down the hill. Dr. Mazar says this royal Phoenician capital proves that this was the site of King David's palace. So we said, Dr. Mazar, maybe this proves something about the Phoenicians, but what does this have to do with David? So Dr. Mazar said it's really very simple. If you open up, careful, if you open up the Bible and you go to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, King David, when he first became king, he was only king over one of the tribes, only the tribe of Judah, his tribe. After seven years, the rest of the tribes come and say, David, you're doing a great job. We want you to be king of everybody, all, all of the ancient Israel. 
So David comes, he becomes king over everyone, and he says, okay, the first thing I'm going to do as king, I'm going to come to this city here, Jerusalem, and capture and make it my capital. Okay, now what was daunting about that is for centuries, no one had actually been able to successfully capture this city. But David comes here, and he is successful. And what does he do? The very first thing, after he captures Jerusalem and makes it his capital, he turns to his neighbors in the north, the Phoenicians, to build an alliance with them. And here's what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. It says, King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David with cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Dr. Mazar says, the reason why we have a royal Phoenician capital here in ancient Jerusalem is because it was the Phoenicians who built the royal palace for David. Despite the controversy, the discoveries in the city of David have helped to establish the existence of King David's dynasty. So what's the debate about where we're standing? You have one school, Dr. Mazar and many others who say this was the royal palace of King David. There are others who say, well, we're not sure this dates to David. We think it might date to the time of David's grandson, right? What there is no debate over is what this place was. This was the royal palace of the Davidic dynasty. Okay? Was David here? We haven't found yet the welcome mat that says, welcome to King David's palace. He could have been here. Solomon could have been here. David's grandson could have been here. But this was the spot of the royal government center of the first Israelite kingdom. As with any good story, there's more twists and turns, and it begins with another discovery by Dr. Mazar just a few years ago. Dr. Mazar is excavating here seven years ago, and she finds a layer of ash from destruction. The antiquities she finds in that layer date back to 586 before the Common Era, to the period of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Now, what she finds in this ash layer shocks the world. The discovery by Dr. Mazar would confirm biblical beliefs with historical fact, as Zev explains. Dr. Mazar, seven years ago, she calls us up. She says, I found something. In ancient times, you want to send a correspondence. So what are you going to do? You're going to write your scroll. And after you write your scroll, you're going to tie it up because you don't want anyone to read it. But what's the problem with just tying it up? It can be untied, right? So what did they do in ancient times? They would take clay, not wax, and you would put it on the knot of the, of the rope, right? And you would then take your ring, and your ring would have your name, son or daughter of, and your father's name. You would put it into the clay while it was still soft. It would harden. you give it to the messenger. The messenger would then deliver it. When the person receives your correspondence, if the seal's intact, you know that your message has not been tampered with. If it's cracked, maybe you kill the messenger, right? <laughs> Dr. Mazar calls us up and says, I found here two clay seals, like the one I have over here. Okay, I'll pass it around. Two clay seals, right? You could take this, right? You could take these two, just pass them around, right? Very small. And she said they have names on them. And she said to us, the names on these two seals, these names appear in the Bible. But not only do the names that appear in these seals appear in the Bible, they appear in the same book in the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. Not only do the names on the seals appear in the same book, they appear in the same chapter. Not only do they appear in the same chapter, chapter 38 in the book of Jeremiah, they appear in the same verse, verse 1. Not only do the names that appear in the seals appear in the Bible, in the same book, in the same chapter, in the same verse, they appear back 
to back in that verse. Who are the names on these seals? You have two of the four ministers of King Zedekiah. You have Gedaliah son of Pashur and Yuchal son of Shlemiah. Right? Two of the four ministers. And where were the seals found? They were found in the royal palace of the Davidic dynasty of ancient Jerusalem in a layer of ash. The Bible tells us how was Jerusalem destroyed? It was burned. Right? What you have here, you know, if you take the Bible, the Bible is a book of faith. Right? You could believe it or not. There are many people who say, okay, I might believe this, but I want to know, is, is what happened in the Bible, is it real? Can I know it? And what you have here, the antiquities that are being pulled from the ground here in these excavations in the city of David are allowing a person to both believe and to know. Where you have science and faith coming together saying, this really happened. These were real people and real events. From conflict to controversy, the real importance of the city of David and the archaeological discoveries is to make Jerusalem a unifying place for mankind. Generally speaking, in, in, in archaeology, what's most interesting is the oldest time period, right? You want to go down to the bottom, and that's what you're most interested in. Here, archaeologists said Jerusalem is different, right? Jerusalem means so much to so many people. So even though we know if we go all the way down to the bottom, you'll have Canaanite and Israelite, we want when someone visits ancient Jerusalem, when they visit the city of David, to feel that they have roots in the city also. So we have preserved here remnants from each layer of civilization so that no matter who walks through this site, they could say, you know what? My roots are in Jerusalem also. Jerusalem is a place that should unite all peoples, bring everyone together. Uh, and that's what we're striving to do here. And that's what we see in this excavation before us. Despite the strong desire to make Jerusalem a place of peace and unification, I wanted to know how some of the tension and conflict is being managed, even at the sacred places like the Western Wall. There's conflict between sure. Muslims and Jews, sure. not so much Christians. How is that managed? I mean, this is a holy site. Um, how, how is that conflict managed? Who does that? It's uh, the the Temple Mount is overseen jointly today by um, by the Israeli police and the Muslim Waqf, which is like the religious trust. Um, again, the Muslims have pretty much free access all the time. Mm-hmm. Non-Muslims have uh, very limited access, a few hours a day to to the site. Uh, and the idea is to try and take a place that obviously is uh, very significant and, and very sensitive, mm-hmm. and try to create an atmosphere where. You're limiting uh, any chance for conflict. Uh, obviously, we're in the Middle East, and the Middle East is a challenging place. Uh, but I think one of the things that, that is so significant about Israel and Jerusalem is if you look throughout much of the Middle East, these ideas of freedom of expression and freedom of worship are largely non-existent. And here in Israel, even though it's not always perfect, you can come regardless of whether you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or whatever your faith and background, and you can come and express yourself here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is something that's very significant, that, that this is a place that, that respects people's faiths, what, whatever it might be. Um, and again, it's, it's not always easy, and you have your bumps in the roads uh, occasionally. But I think uh, overall the, the record uh, of, of, of providing freedom of access to, to places of worship is, is pretty good here.
would be the first chapter in our story if we were to visit Newport, Rhode Island? I would have to tell you that Newport, Rhode Island, America's first resort, starts with an unbelievable history and ends with an experience around every corner. Not only do we have international, beautiful Gilded Age mansions, but we have the International Tennis Hall of Fame. We have world-class hotels, bed and breakfasts. We have a little something for everybody. We are known for our, of course, sailing. We are the sailing capital of the world. So combine the sailing on the water with a year-round, unbelievable calendar of events. Our story starts and begins with an experience around every corner. And I encourage anybody that wants to find out about our experiences in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island, 365 days a year, to check out our website, discovernewport.org. Reinhardt is a third-generation Namibian of German descent. He was our tour guide during our trip to Namibia, and we sat down with him at dinner during our stay at the Mount Echo Lodge. The original family originally came from Germany in the early uh, 1890s. Um, great-grandfather came out here. And I've been involved in tourism for 30 years this year, um, initially in Botswana, 10 years in Botswana, and then the last 20 years in Namibia. And uh, specifically doing the northwest, the more drier areas, more remote areas of Namibia is my speciality. It's also the area that I prefer just because it's so unspoiled and unfenced and, and it's the way Africa was and hopefully will be for a long time to come. One of the things that we've come to know during our time here is this uh, notion of one Namibian that in seeking independence from South Africa that blacks and whites were united in that. And because of that, there has been a different post uh, period in independence with the uh, newborns or who have who have been born into freedom and just how the country has evolved. Give us a sense as to what what those relationships are like, because there's a large middle class that's uh, black and white in this country. And, and so, so the sense has been is to try to bring as many people along as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we never had the serious, serious apartheid like they had in South Africa. Obviously, depending on the ge- geographical um, area that you are in Namibia, it, it varies. You can get in Vintuk, there's, there's, it's much more integrated than in the south, for instance. South is still mainly farming. Um, it's still mainly the Afrikaans people living there, and they, they do the, the most of the agriculture. Um, so I think in their areas, um, not much has changed. Um, they still they the, they in charge of the land. They run the farming. They do whatever. Then, as you go further north, it, it changes a lot. You know, you have very close to this area that we are now. Um, a lot of Herero people live here, and they're very, very good farmers. And and they've been more integrated in um, in the um, farming community because they're not seen as being a black or a white. They're seen as being a good farmer or a bad farmer. Um, so there's there's it's much easier here than what it is. Definitely in the cities. Um, 
you get a lot of, um, I wouldn't say segregation is not the right word, but there, there definitely is a, a, a mentality, I would say, almost is in, in separate development. You know, each tribe, um, even amongst the white people, whether you're German or an Afrikaner or English, you, you know, you each have your own, own way of doing things. When there's things like our independence celebrations and we have um, a national team playing sport or something, everybody gets together, you know. Mm-hmm. So when, when, it's, when it's of any national importance, everybody pulls together, then it's, it's really great. But obviously when it comes to economics and all the rest, there definitely, definitely is a bit of a... Uh, um, a bit of segregation. One of the things that we have come to appreciate is just how much unspoiled natural beauty there is and that much of what you do through Namibia Tracks and Tours is to give visitors to Namibia the authentic experience of being immersed, whether it's through camping or visiting some of these uh, places that are, are special. You can do anything from a, a five-star super luxury lodge to, to camping wild under a tree next to a riverbed type of thing. Um, and that's what makes Namibia unique, is that we have all these wildlife places. We were talking earlier about the rhino, you know, being in an open area where there's no, no fences, no nothing. Um, and that's definitely for the most part of northwest Namibia, that's the case. You know, there's no, there's no fences, there's no laws that says you're not allowed to camp here or you cannot do this. And the great thing about Namibia is that the people are really, really friendly people. You can go anywhere and you can, you know, strike up a conversation with somebody. In the rural areas, unfortunately, not many people speak English. Um, you know, there's no reason for them to. But you can definitely, even just by using sign language, and whatever, you, you will get along. And it's very, very solemn that you will go anywhere in Namibia and you'll be met with a stony face or, or you know, people don't want to talk to you. And that's one of the things that makes it unique. Um, the wildlife, definitely, you know, we've got a very wide diversity um, of wildlife. You get the desert regions like we've been in, where you get specific wildlife that you only find in the desert areas. If you go up to the northeast into the Caprivi area, it's completely different again, much more wetlands. So you start getting aquatic animals that, that you wouldn't get to the, in the rest of the country. We have some very specific species like the desert-adapted elephants, desert-adapted lions that you don't get anywhere else in Africa. Sure, there's elephants and lions everywhere else, but not that live in the harsh conditions and specialized conditions like ours do. Um, so these are just some of the things that we have to offer that, that nobody, nobody else has to offer. And sorry, the fact that you can obviously, where these animals occur, it's, it's a natural habitat. It's not a, it's not a park. It's not a zoo. It's not a, uh, uh, enclosed area. So if you're just camping wild somewhere, they could be walking through your camp or you could be driving five meters out of your, your camp and you could see whatever. And, and that's what makes it, makes it unique as well. Now, much of the country has been uh, uh, protected and much of the land is owned by the government. I understand it's uh, approximately 50% of the land here is either part of a national park system or is in some sort of conservation that really lends itself to preserving these environments. Give us a sense about how, how, how the country is really striking the balance between protecting these places and yet encouraging visitation and tourism in, in some of these very sensitive areas. Well, the, the good thing is, like, you saw the areas we've driven through, the desert areas. So it's, in a sense, it's the, it's the country that protects itself. You cannot use it for anything else. Um, 
and you can only use it for, for conservation for the rest. So, so that, you don't have that in many of the other countries. Most of the other countries around us, like South Africa, like Botswana, like Zimbabwe, wherever wildlife exists is normally very prime areas. So there's always competition with the domestic animals like beef, like goats, like whatever the guys have got, to push, put them into this area. So you get conflict immediately. A lot of the areas we have, there is no conflict. There's nobody living there. There's no people living there. There's no animals living there. Then the other thing is that we've, we've over the years, um, conservation being a very high priority in, in everyday life in, in Namibia, um, a lot of people that with, with education have realized that they can benefit out of, out of tourism. So um, when you look at the conservancies and things we have, um, most of them run, there are lodges running in in partnership with, with uh, the conservancies. You know, they see the people coming there. They understand why the people are coming. People are coming to look at the animals. People come to want to spend time in the wild. Um, and they take those ideas back to the villages. You know, people that don't work in the lodges say, why must we sit here and allow these people to drive through our land? Well, you know, you're making money. You're earning a living out of it. Your family's earning a living out of it. The money's going back into your community, which before never was the case. You just used to see the vehicles driving through there. And, and the more that happens, the more people are willing to put more land aside for conservation. And as things are going, people are realizing that we don't have to just farm with cattle and with goats and with, with uh, sheep. And, and we can make a living out of cropping our wild animals, our wild game. You know, like you've seen at the lodges, a lot of the lodges offer uh, venison, you know, all, all kinds of different venison. So in that sense, um, tourism is not just about somebody driving through an area taking pictures. You know, it's, it's all the benefits that comes with it. listening to World Footprints Radio. We've been talking to Namibian tour guide Eric Reinhardt about Namibia's past, present, and future. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment.
course of our travels, particularly after our visit to see the white ladies, mm-hmm. um, I thought to myself, what type of traveler um, would Namibia be ideal for? Certainly the adventure traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I questioned, you know, is Namibia good for perhaps an accessible traveler, somebody who's not able-bodied or an elderly mm-hmm. person? Um, would Namibia be an ideal location for, for those travelers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we've done we've done um, a little bit of the more the adventurous stuff, like you say. You know, walking up to the White Lady and all the rest. Um, um, but that's just a small percentage of what you can do in those areas. You know, even if people are with limited mobility, can still drive in a Land Rover, and and you can take them just about anywhere to see anything. Um, you know, as far as, as hiking and all the rest goes, unfortunately, because it's a very rocky and sandy terrain, it becomes very difficult for, for, for people that have got limited uh, um, uh, mobility. Um, but there's definitely areas, uh, there's a lot of lodges that cater um, for people like in wheelchairs or, or um, you know, walking disabilities. Uh, we've had lots of people that have got problems um, where you need to have respirators on at night and things like that because the infrastructure is so good here uh, you know we've got roads all over the place most places you've got either cell phone reception or, or landline telephone we've got very good doctors, we've got a flying doctor service um, so for these people it, it's it's really easy to travel in Namibia, mm-hmm. very easy I, I think certainly the lodge that we're sitting in now, Mount Echo um, is friendly to accessible yes. travellers, um, considering the sprawl of our suite <laughs> <laughs> it is quite large. Um, but I, I wanted to just kind of double back, circle back to the white ladies and ask you to explain what that is to our audience, what those paintings are to our audience. Well, the, the, the thinking obviously goes when, when it was coined as the, the painting of the white lady the first time. Um, these, these paintings were, were shown to some Europeans in the early 40s. Um, and 1940s. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And, and the perception in those days were that any, um, um, you know, great engineering feat or any, any city of note, great Zimbabwe ruins, had to be white people that built that. You know, it was, that's, that's always been the thinking. So obviously this is a tall person. Um, it has to be a white lady. And it was for a long time they thought that this was the Queen of Sheba, you know, the, 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 the myth of the Queen of Sheba. And, and, um, and then with time, you know, the, the university sent people to have a look at this uh, from Germany, from all over the world the people came. And as people began to understand the African culture more and more, um, they realized, but hang on, you know, this, this is not, this is a medicine man. Um, mm. And the medicine man doesn't necessarily have to be taller or bigger than the tribal people, but in their minds, a medicine man is a big is a big thing. You know, it's a big man. So that's why the, it seems like it's much bigger than the other people around them. Mm. And obviously, the, the the medicine men when they did their rituals and things, they would either use white clay to paint themselves. It could have been animal fat that they painted themselves. Could be wearing feathers, um, and that's the white that you see on see on them. Um, so it's definitely got nothing to do about being a white, a white woman, a white lady, or whatever. It's just a name that is stuck. Um, you know, they to change the name now. Um, 
I, I don't know what they would change it to, to yeah. be quite honest. Um, and I understand that the the people painted like the white lady is about 2,000 years old, 2000. and the animals that are also depicted in this section of mountain yes. are about a thousand yes. years old. So the, we're we're talking about ancient, very Fair. ancient Fair. artwork. There are some paintings there that are much more much more uh, modern. You know, we've got paintings that they've dated at about 300 years old. Mm. So that would have been the last of one of the tribes that lived along the coast is a tribe that we, we called um, the Strandloper. Now, a Strandloper directly translated means people who walk on the beach. So you would have had nomadic people moving up and down the beach, um, living on seals being washed out, fishing where they can, uh, um, a lot of the areas where there are freshwater springs coming down towards the ocean, they would find things like springbuck and oryx that they could hunt. And they would definitely, in the, in, the, um, um, in the winter months, you know, our coastline is cold and it's foggy and it's wet and there's a lot of wind. In those times, they would definitely move inland. Um, after the rains, you know, we're heading towards winter now. We've had some good rains. Mm-hmm. And, and they would then also find these old shelters of, of the, the previous uh, ancestors that lived there. And, and see these paintings and things and then we think like, hey, this is neat. Maybe we should write down our history as well. So it's a very different uh, style of painting, but as recent as 300 years ago, we, we have paintings now. One of the things that struck me about uh, Namibia, just to give people a, a sense of the uh, microclimates here, uh, normally when we travel, we uh, travel based on a season, but we've experienced four seasons in uh, in, in our eight days, I have had long johns on and winter clothing at Walvis Bay to being in shorts and uh, taking off my shirt uh, because we've been in uh, desert climates and uh, it's, 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 it's been above 90. So that is part of Namibia. That's, that's part of what makes this such a special place. And so if you come, you've got to be prepared to deal with all of these elements that will take you out of your comfort zone. Absolutely, absolutely. As you saw the day we picked you guys up in Vintuk, we had a little bit of rain in Vintuk, but it was still pretty, pretty warm. Then as we moved westwards towards the coast, it started cooling down and cooling down and cooling down. So obviously the, the Benguela current, which runs um, up from, from you know, the this, this southern part of the Atlantic, uh, moving northwards, has got a huge influence on our weather. So anywhere when you are along the coast, um, we've got 120 days a year, we've got fog. So you always have to be prepared that the weather could change. Like you saw the day we got there, very, depending very much on what the wind is doing, if you've got those very strong winds in the afternoon, you're going to have fog in the morning. Mm-hmm. If, there's no fog in the, if there's no wind in the afternoon, the next day you could have really nice weather. So for us, the absolute, absolute best uh, season as far as weather along the coast goes would be from November until about end of February. That's, that's basically our three top months um, along the coast. But, um, you know, the rest of Namibia, like you saw, um, you could be dressed in a jacket and jeans and, and really covered up, and you leave the coast, and within 50 kilometers of being inland, you're going to have to stop and take off your jeans and put on shorts and all the rest. I'd like to ask you to talk about your hometown, Swakamont, uh, which is uh, very famous for its German uh, ambiance. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, obviously, Swakopmund is is always been seen as the holiday town of of Namibia. Um, in previous years, it was also the the main retirement town for for a lot of the people in Namibia. Mm. Definitely, for most of the farmers, you know, you'd be living on a farm for all your life, where it's really really hot, and you would have like a little holiday home down on the coast, 
where you would go on holidays and, and school holidays and, and definitely Christmas holidays. So it's sort of natural that, that when it came to time to retire, most people would retire to Swakopmund. Eric Reinhardt of Namibia Tracks and Trails, we thank you so much for being with us on World Footprints and sharing your beautiful country of Namibia with our audience. It was a great pleasure hosting you guys. My name is Gail Gilbert, and I am the senior sales manager at this beautiful, beautiful property in Warrenton, Virginia, called Airly. It's spelled A-I-R-L-I-E, just like the air you breathe. The property is steeped in history. It's located on 1,200 acres, only 45 miles southwest of Washington, D.C., so we're not far away. So, Gail, um, we're talking at the Historic Hotel's event right now. What makes Airly a historic hotel? Our hub is a Georgian Revival mansion that was built in 1899. So there were a lot of uh, Civil War battles that were fought in uh, the acreage surrounding Airly. Um, There's a lot of history in Warrenton. The Manassas uh, battlefields are, are not far away. So if you use Airly as your hub for exploring vineyards or um, battlefields, or even the town of Warrington is a charming little town. big city, you can travel around the world with your palate. In small towns and rural areas, however, the culinary offerings are often limited to fast food and chain restaurants. But we found a slice of Sicily during a trip to the small American Midwest town of New Salem, Indiana. Just as Italian kitchens are noisy, so was this restaurant, but we had to meet this charming chef. My name is Damiano Perillo. I'm a co-owner of Perillo's Pizzeria slash Trattoria restaurant. So we are, uh, you know, uh, North Salem, Indiana. This is a small little town uh, of America. We are a family-owned restaurant. I've been in business all my life. As Italian um, pizza restaurant business, Italian restaurant, and uh, we opened uh, Perillos in 2011. What uh, to my family, uh, wife and brother-in-law, and pretty much all, all everybody you see here, we are related. We all family. How did a nice guy from Sicily end up in a, this tiny little town of New Salem, Indiana? Well, it's a good question. It is a good question. I graduated from culinary school, 1998, in Sicily. Um, I win. Uh, it's called kind of like a lottery, uh, for, and I immigrate to United States in uh, 1999. Uh, I immigrated in Chicago. I worked for a banquet hall, um, which we uh, uh, from there. Um, I met a, 
uh, a guy from my own town, his name is Frank, Frank Russo, which he owns a Frank's place in Danville. It's about 10 miles away from here. That's how I end up in Indiana. I end up in North Salem because my wife. My wife, she's from here. She's not Italiana? No, she's America. Um, so we immigrated, you know, I, I, I moved to North Salem about four years ago, and we started this uh, uh, beautiful tradition, you know, of Italian restaurant, which it is Italian restaurant, but we kind of try to create a different uh, vibe from a typical Italian restaurant. You know, usually the regular Italian restaurant, it's always close to be always the same food so what you see today it's kind of my own town Casteldaccia what you'll see in pictures here and it's kind of like uh, the summer uh, food that we eat there so how has the local community embraced this cultural immersion uh, you know it was a kind of um, for beginning when we opened uh, Perillo so we was actually opening construction wise we built this all ourselves it took us 11 months and uh, I was a little scared a little intimidated because you know uh, like I said when I immigrate from Italy uh, to United States I always work in a big city so big city people used to of a lot of a different variety uh, nationality small town who knows it can be good it can be you know Bad, but uh, like I was saying, my, my roots down a small little town off Sicily, uh, close to the beach and the mountain. So uh, I will say, roughly about five years ago, I tried, you know, with my brother in law, they graduate from college, and we kind of talk. And I want to uh, try to open a restaurant, and uh, why not? Small little town. I mean, it's, I love the, the countryside, I love fishing, I love hunting. So why not small town? And uh, I feel that uh, if I was going to make in this business, I should have started in small town and w- work my way up to big town. Because, you know, big town, you have too much competition. And uh, believe it or not, I don't have no money. <laughs> so whatever money I had, I kind of, I have to invest in a small town, which I, I thought about, you know, 80% I could have made it. And four years later, we're here, and I think I'm making it. <laughs> So did you bring some of your recipes over from Sicily? All this, re- all this food you see today created here, yes, they are from uh, uh, long road. They are like my grandma, my mother, my father. And, uh, and then uh, I learned from culinary school. So I kind of put all together and modify and come up with my own. Yeah. Now, I know my, my late godfather is from Bari. Bari, and so okay. I, and yes. He, former they chef. eat a lot of good seafood there. Bari is known for uh, homemade pastas and uh, seafood, yes. And the fresh uh, burrata cheese. I mean, you guys know for that really good cheese. <laughs> so I know even in Italy, from the north to the south... The, it's a very big difference. Yes. Like our culture in Sicily, uh, the food, like, it's so funny because in Sicily, uh, if you really know... It, the history of Sicily, we have so many different uh, uh, invasions, and every invasion they come to Sicily, they left us something of culinary. So it's so funny because when you travel Sicily coast to coast, you will see every town they cook differently. For example, the lasagna from Palermo, it will taste different from the lasagna from uh, Messina or Catania. 
you know, uh, because like I was saying, they had uh, so many different uh, uh, invasions, so they they they, 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 they stole so many different recipes and they come it's up with what the hell. I think they, they, I mean, some of them was left, some of them got uh, modified, but uh, I mean, uh, like, like Sicily and uh, the difference from Sicily and the North Italy is that we use more uh, uh, different type of cheeses. But our cheese, unfortunate, is more from sheep, not from cow. So the cheese... Uh, taste some people they like some people they don't because some of they are too sharp or too salty or too you know um, a wildness uh, smell to it do, do you import any uh, ingredients from Sicily here uh, I don't know if I should told you that but uh, <laughs> uh, I try to and uh, yes we work with the company uh, actually they are located in Indianapolis and they import or, or a product from uh, Italy, not just for us, for a lot of restaurants, but yes, uh, we import a lot of ingredients. And sometimes when I go home, uh, uh, I put some stuff in the bags I'm not supposed to, but you know, that's for the extra stuff. <laughs> like oregano, for example, the oregano. Oregano, I know people say it's about oregano, oregano, oregano. I think it's Sicily, the mountain of uh, Sicily, it has the best oregano in the world. I've been around a lot, and I've been in a lot of countries, and the oregano is good, but not like, not like, not like home. Not to bragging about it, it's just that maybe it makes it more special when you walk on top of the mountain after you have done a three hours of hiking, and you get to the mountaintop, and you see an acreage of wild oregano and it's uh, and it's something that's disappearing even in Sicily because the, it become a more uh, um, agriculturally development you know what I mean people just produce now you know oregano is supposed to be wild but now you can just plant oregano so chef one of the things that we uh, really Talk, that we talk about on World Footprints is, you know, the culinary experience. It's a travel experience, and for somebody to immerse themselves in sure. a destination, the, the, the culinary to... experience that I learn. Uh, uh, see, culinary to me I always loved it. It's a something you really carry in your blood, or you love it, or you choose it because you do love it, or you choose because it ain't no other jobs. What she, in and through the years I learned that uh, they are. Mm, they are count the people they do that for passion. Uh, some they do because it's work a trade. It's uh, something that you know they, they do because they need to feed the family. They learn how to cook and they okay. But I, I, in America, more I feel like in the last ten years, it's become more. Uh, uh, maybe because of the TV shows, you get the new uh, kids, the new generation, uh, expire, inspire to cook. You know, so but to me it was natural. It was uh, I remember since I was a child, uh, we owned a lot of acreage of uh, olive oil, olives, lemon, orange, and uh, believe it or not, I hated working the field. It was not my thing. Uh, like I said, my all my family they are uh, an uh, agriculture business, and I, I was not uh, physical labor. Then maybe because they started me too young, so I choose a really age to uh, stay in the kitchen with grandma. Uh, yeah, they call me the little the little girl, but I didn't care, you know. But I learned a lot. At some time, like every day, when I do something, uh, I think about her, 
and uh, you know what I mean that uh, she taught me and she didn't have no culinary school she didn't have no education she didn't even know how to read or write she just to her it was normal I mean uh, back then it was a culture that uh, a woman supposed to know how to cook and since my grandfather my dad and my uncle they all know so many land to produce uh, vegetable and fruit they had a lot of workers so my grandma's job it was that she gets up 4 30 in the morning five o'clock in the morning and cook for 12 to 18 people and loaded up the mule and walk up on the mountain and wait for the guys 11 o'clock to take a break and eat you know so tell me what journey are you going to take us on today what are you serving us uh i'm serving uh, this right here uh, it's a typical, um, uh, uh, it's like white bread with uh, salsa rosa and uh, got a Sicilian olives, a fresh mozzarella, prosciutto, ham, salami. This is smoked salami. This is the best salami you can have. It's a smoked salami. It's straight from uh, uh, Naples, the salami. And then we have a typical salad right here, you know. Uh, what uh, fresh calamari olives, tomato, cucumbers from her garden, tomato from our garden, lettuce. And then we have this one right here. That's my favorite. And that's eggplant. We call them melanzane ai ferri. I mean, they're cooked in a grill. Uh, and, it, 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 and the spice of this, it's a 100% pure Sicilian olive oil, fresh garlic from her garden. And they got a parsley, uh, balsamic vinegar, and, uh, and a little bit of oregano. This one right here is called pepata. The pepata di peperoni. The pepperoni, you got to usually red peppers and uh, yellow peppers. And you're supposed to have uh, the green ones too. But I didn't put it in there because we, you know, I thought about it was too much uh, flavor going on. And it's a roast and the grill. When they cool off, you peel it. You take the skin off, and then you dice them stripped, and you put it. Lemon juice. And you put uh, olive oil, fresh garlic. The garlic, it's roast, too. If you pay attention, it's roast garlic also. And then you put a basil, olive oil, salt, pepper. And it's supposed to have a little hot peppers, but... Which I don't know if you guys like spice and not spice, so I made a mild. I just put a little, little bit, not crazy. Grazie, chef. Di niente. Grazie a lei. You're welcome. our show today, the, all the places that we've traveled, Namibia, Israel, even Indiana, um, they're very, very magical. And that's a, one thing that I love about travel. And I, I found this quote that I wanted to share with everyone that really resonated with me. Um, we travel not to escape life, but for life not to escape us. And the creator is anonymous. I have no one to attribute it to, but I thought that was a very 
powerful uh, quote that really resonated with me and I'm sure you and, and other people. And that's the thing that we that's the thing that I love about about traveling. You know, there's nothing that rejuvenates my soul more. There's nothing that makes me feel more alive. Well, certainly in places like Namibia and Israel, and we can talk about them separately, but those were uh, really inspiring experiences and really touched the soul in ways that we don't often get when we go to um, just a lot of places, a lot of places with, with a whole bunch of people or, you know, we're seeing the same sorts of corporate hotels and things like that. There were really some special things, um, particularly in Namibia, where we spent a lot of time with nature and Mm. under the stars and by campfires and just doing things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. Yeah, you know, I was actually quite proud of you out camping. (laughs) You you weren't the Boy Scout that uh, that I... I, uh I mean, I grew up as a Girl Scout. You, you were—you hadn't been used to camping. Well, maybe I hadn't been used to camping, but I've, I've done some camping. <laughs> and you know, there, there's—I mean, we talked about all the wonderful, magical things that that we've experienced, all, all the surprises. Um, certainly, in Israel, the Sea of Galilee was powerful for me, and it's a one place that I really felt at peace. It's a one place I really felt the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, the Lord's presence. And uh, I long to return there. And, you know, even in Indiana, there's a lot of wonderful surprises from the art galleries, from the food scenes. But the one surprise that I didn't expect was a security breach that I was subjected to uh, at the hotel in Bloomington, where Somebody called my hotel room late at night, 10.15. And you wound up calling me at home after we had spoken about an hour before that. I I know. Well, but this gentleman knew my name. He knew my room number. And he represented himself to be somebody from the hotel and was requesting uh, reservation information because he claimed, you know, the computer systems had been uh, wiped, had wiped all the reservation information clean. And... I reported on this. We wrote a story uh, about this or published a story, at least on worldfootprints.com, the year or so before. And so I knew that this was a phishing scam. What alarmed me and and the reason why I called you on a work night um, was that this person apparently asked for me specifically and my room number. And so he knew where I was staying. Yeah. And what was so strange about this is because you were part of a uh, of, of a group trip there, oh, well, a conference. and uh, you didn't book this hotel information. You didn't make your reservation directly. It right. was made made through the group. So there were definitely some red flags that were raised. And so this was just a strange experience, even for you as a savvy traveler who knew. But just the just the ways that people try to. Uh, commit these sorts of scams is is pretty ingenious in some respects. Yeah, they're they're crafty. And the general manager, when I spoke to him, spent a lot of time defending uh, his staff. And, you know, clearly for somebody to know my name and room number, it was an inside uh, job. And, And so I just caution our audience just to be really careful and mindful. Um, that doesn't happen. And you're not supposed to give your 
credit card information or any other information to somebody who just calls your room number, uh, your hotel room at an odd hour of the day, well before you're meant to check out. So that's a lesson for today. And um, I just want to thank you guys for joining us. We are Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to taking you on another journey next time on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.